Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the great Pablo Torre, who is the co-host, along with um, a prior guest in the show and a friend of mine, Bomani Jones, of, I think, uh, my my new favorite show on ESPN. Wow. Which, wow. I mean, the truth is that Highly Questionable is hard to knock out for me for its absurdity. <laughs> By the way, Highly Questionable was always the most absurd paycheck to receive at ESPN. You go, yeah, you course. sit next to Poppy, you're done in a startlingly short amount of time, and you're like, this counted? I'm almost, this is there's, there's almost nothing I'm more fascinated by than Poppy's brainwaves. You're oh, just you're not alone. You're you, you, you are one of a population of people that I think is larger than any other population of, of people who want to know about anybody else that we work with. I just need to understand what exactly is happening there. So highly questionable for me because at night you turn that on and it is a great absurdist way to end your day because you can spend a lot of time wondering who's in on the joke, who's not in on the joke, what is the joke. How is that on television? Yeah, there are levels to it. But High Noon is, and I want to talk about the word smart, you know, it is the smartest look at what's going on in the culture of sports. And uh, you guys were off for two weeks, and I, I'll tell you, the gr a great sign of um, the show working is I really couldn't wait till I could watch it again last night. Thank you, and I am, and and for the audience at home, I am smiling ear to ear because I'm a fan of yours, and that's really cool. I'm I'm still so new to this, where all of this is like, Ooh, this is chicken soup for my soul, Brian Koppelman. Thank you. No, that's great, but this is like, uh, yeah, I want to talk about how this is all hitting you. But where where we were talking just before the mics got turned on, is that on the show yesterday you mentioned you called yourself Filipino, and I happen to know a little bit about Filipino culture because I have friends who are whose parents mm -hmm. were born there, close friends, and. Um, so I know there are Spanish Filipinos. There are people who are um, identify as Pinoy, which is, a, I guess, a colloquialism, but it means people who are indigenous before the Spanish came to the Philippines um, and conquered it. And then there are English Filipino people. And uh, what I noticed about you is you're an insider and an outsider and have been for your, mm. I think, for your whole life. So how do you identify on the, in, in, in that way? Because I asked you, are you Spanish Filipino? And you were like, uh, yes, but no. Well, well, I would say that I've never, <laughs> I've never said I'm Spanish Filipino, where the word Spanish comes before the Filipino, because I have always been Pinoy, and and that is, and that's one of those terms though that obviously needs to be understood in the context of colonialism. Yes, the Spanish Empire and this dude named King Philip, who somehow decided to have his name attached, however many generations down the line, to the Philippines, despite. The Philippines being spelled P-H-I-L-I-P-P-I-N-E-S, which is not necessarily the intuitive way you'd think, oh, it's Philip, right? How do you do it? But so, Filipinos is with an F. And then Filipinos is with the F. So it's a big stew of stuff. And I think what you are hitting on is one of my favorite kernels and naughty, naughty, naughty kernels of, of and by the, that's naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y. I now realize that. Uh, but it's one of these really complex things about like, colorism and so anybody can have some trace of anything but and this goes to bomani and i were talking about octoroons today you use the word <laughs> no 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 this is before the show you can't use that word on television i don't know we'll find out we were able to say pussy riot on espn i heard bomani say it last <laughs> night and i thought that was great 
Uh, and I and I want to ask you about the fact that you then the way you casually threw the Papa John in there as the <laughs> new way to say the N word. That's how you used it. I have I have he co-opted went, Papa John. It's great though. <laughs> To, to use it in, in, in to, to use it in a way that signifies that there is such great clumsiness uh, when it comes to race relations. That is that is the signifier that Papa John. Well, we would say blend. I me. mean, you would never. Nobody would say. Uh, no, no, but but it is one of those terms. And in fact, so this is you've you've stumbled into a great window upon what we do before the show, which is dick around and talk about thorny subjects. Bomani was calling me out for claiming everybody who is part Filipino. As, as one of my tribesmen, which I do. Uh, Nate Robinson is one-eighth Filipino. I have, That's why the I term- have reported this out, and so Bomani invented the term Octorino. No. Can I At just say point, no? I, but, Can I, I say but no? But Brian, I said yes. <laughs> and so we launched into this conversation about Octoroons and, and the one-drop rule and the idea fundamentally that, yeah, color tends to actually be the true grind the true guiding principle for who is what. And so the ancestral charts tend to sort of fall away in the face of practical reality. David Ortiz can say the N-word not because anybody has any sophisticated knowledge of the Dominican and the race relations therein. So he can go full Papa John. He can in go your, in <laughs> your lingua franca, in your uh, idiolect. He can he he can go full Papa John. He can say things with a diplomatic immunity because he looks and is the color that David Ortiz is, and everyone kind of gets it, even if it's not so interrogated explicitly in the day to day of any of our lives. Well, even if his particular ancestors weren't here, mm-hmm. um, living. Uh, called that. Yeah, and, and by the way, I think the first, I remember this vividly for some weird reason in Bomani and my friendship, and we don't just talk about <laughs> complex race topics uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I do remember him pointing out to me, as I'm a New Yorker born and raised in Manhattan, uh, it is weird that like there is a certain pass that people get, and this goes back to uh, the Afro-Latino phenomenon to those who are not familiar with it. This goes to the Caribbean. This goes to all sorts of things uh, that may play more organically and obviously in New York, but to a guy from Atlanta or Houston or other parts of the country, you may stop and think, wait a minute, why? When did that get okay? Um, and so well, yeah, anyway, in, the yeah. current, in the current climate of the world, I want to start taking back the word kike, because, which I can use being of Jewish heritage, mm-hmm. even though I'll get letters from people for me using it about my own people, because I know it's being said behind closed doors all over the country now. It's and a, so... So many things are saying behind doors that are wide open as well. <laughs> yeah. They're in rally, as a rallying so I cry like now. I, I, I get as a rallying from. cry now. And I think that's probably a word I haven't said in, in 40 years, you know. Um, but, but here's what I was... Yeah, we, we were, we were to, somewhere else. But no, here's what I was trying to get to is because you are uh, uh, the child of successful people, right? I, I would, I would, I'm proud to say that I am. Uh, yet, and and you were you're famously Harvard educated and graduated magna and wrote a big thesis um, at at Harvard. Then also sort of famously got yourself the lowest rung on the ladder job at SI and worked your way up quickly to become. Um, someone who wrote for SI Sports mm. Illustrated, and uh, but what I'm what I'm interested in is that you are this combination of insider and outsider because you definitely identify as somebody. I didn't know, you know, um, 
are I don't know if it's uh, you're only Filip- Filipino. Or, yeah, yeah, parents yeah. Philippines, but that's that's the stew. That's the stew, the whole yeah, stew of it. Yeah. But you identify as an Asian person. Yes, absolutely. And talk from that perspective. And so, how did you um, like? Can you talk about how it affected this insider and outsider status affected your decision making from an early age and how it created the prism through which you see things, because I do think it's a distinct place from which you see things, which is this understanding of the way um, uh, outsiders have to see the world, but also you are part of, I don't, I don't like using the word elite anymore because that mm-hmm. word has been co-opted, but you do understand how the halls of power, how the halls of high education how decision-making works on that level. So how has that all affected how you look at the world? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's a pretty good unifying theory about me if I got if I got a, uh, <laughs> I gotta say, that's pretty good. Uh, it's weird because I did not necessarily appreciate outsideriness or outsider-dumb until, uh, until college and then certainly after when you're out in the world public-facingly. Right. Sure. So, so one of the weird things about being, and I would say the Asian experience, and certainly the Filipino experience um, in America. I, I went to my parents are Catholic. Where'd you grow up? Catholic. Grew up in Manhattan. Born and raised. First person in my family. Born in America. Uh, went to Catholic schools. Uh, went to an all boys high school, and was always, you know, like one of a couple of Filipino or Asian kids, which is all to say that. It was mostly like Irish, Italian, mostly kids who came from, uh, it was an all scholarship school, so it was a pretty good economic diversity, but racially it was, yeah, majority white. And so one of the things that you learn as you make yourself uh, a person who can stand up straight and and volunteer to run for a student council and stuff in grade school is you realize uh, how to blend in. Sure. <laughs> how to blend in. And so to be an insider initially entirely just meant being one of the kids who didn't stick out in any particular way. And the blending, of course, into any background is the great Asian-American. But how did you start to realize it? Did you talk to your parents about this stuff? Or were they making their way, one of them's a doctor? Or both are doctors, both are doctors. Yeah. Were they making their, they're making their way, they're putting in insane hours. You're going trying to figure all this out by yourself? Are there, what are the demands placed upon you? So this was new uh, to anybody. In my family, because I was the first, I was the first one. Right. I was, I was. My sister, by the way, is four years older, and she had, she was, she was experiencing all of this four years before me, but in a different way. And and I would say that some of that is owed to just you know, being a a a a boy. <laughs> sure. Uh, and that's its own sort of voyage through all of this. Well, when you with boys, and when we're young, and this is still the case, and maybe it won't, there's always also the physical threat component. Yes. There's a huge physical threat to being a woman in society. Of course. But a grade school, in general, the ecosystem, in grade school, yes. boys are fighting each other. Yeah, there's a prison yard dynamic to even the most wimpy of Catholic schools. And so, you know, there is, there is this feeling of that. But I would say that so much of it was was obligated by the fact that I never learned Tagalog, which is the Filipino right, course, language. Yeah. I only speak English. And my parents, obviously, they speak Tagalog and other Filipino dialects. I never learned it. And so their conscious decision... They didn't want you to learn it. They didn't want me to learn it. And that so they was, didn't speak Tagalog in the house. They did, but limited and never taught us... Uh, 
yeah, how to speak Do it. Do they so, speak an accent in English? My dad more than my mom, although both of them, I think, it's one of those accents where you're around people of similar way and you hear it come out. And one of the great, and so I didn't visit the Philippines until later in grade school, I want to say. And so just, by the way, to go there and, and I don't, you, you know about the thriller in Manila, just the absurd, like the caricature of the Philippines, right? It felt like that. Mark Cram, the Sports Illustrated writer, wrote that the humidity felt like you were wearing a heavy, wet rope. And so it's just the sensory overload plus the idea that I'm seeing my parents and hearing my parents become oh, yeah. different people sure. um, was so empowering and, and, and it, it made me have such great affection for the place, but it also felt like a surreal out-of-body experience. Like, I don't know this. I don't know any of this. You're not, yeah, you know you're of it in a certain way, but you're not actually of no, it. No, and so when my cousins, and there are so many cousins, Catholic families, my dad is one of eight, my mom is one of seven, right? You have 50 cousins and they're all in their own, and literal own languages. And then you see that they have the ability to switch back and forth. And yeah. I am just left on one side of the curb, right? And, and, and so all of that is a lot to process. Um, but, but in the context of, of the States, yeah, I, I was sort of given or, or forced, forced sounds so harsh, but I was given the opportunity to grow up as if I was well, you, just whoever. Well, you were, I mean, it's important to state it in these times. You were an American. Yes, and so, and so all of the, right, all, thank you, all yes, of the category labels. That's what you were. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's are, all I got, passport-wise. I'm stuck here. Yeah, you're a, better you're a fucking American. <laughs> and, that's, uh, and, so, and so that's basically... Uh, not until later on we can get to, to college and all of the absurdity. We will, in, but, but, because, but, yeah. but in high school, so in high school you didn't feel the sting of being considered uh, other as, as much. I, no, because it was a small school. The kids I went to school with were so smart and it was a Jesuit school and everyone was, so, I mean, they were teaching like liberation theology, right? Sure. They were teaching postmodern God. So I got a, a, such a remarkable and, and I think unique approach to it that I was- Pagels? <laughs> Liberation theology, like that woman, Ellen Pagels, mm -hmm. I think was the name, who wrote, I'm pretty sure that's her name. I took a course on that too. I'm going to nod and say yes because that I'm sounds right, sure but we may mutually right. expose really ourselves. Close. That's really close to right. But yeah, so anyway, you would, we did like Christian service trips to Ecuador in the summer and we did all that sort of stuff. So the, the notion of being othered in high school was so muted for me because we were actually having pretty high level discussions at that age about contemporary social and political issues, which was literally the name of a class I took. Um, and so not till later and not till college and certainly, and I went to Harvard, so that's its own to borrow now the allegation lobbed uh, at it. That is the ivory tower. That is the elite. That's its own bubble, admittedly on whatever level. Not just a bubble <laughs> though. I know I, I didn't go to Harvard, but I, I've um, for various reasons made you, something you of a study. money to I've them. Made something of a study of it. Uh, yeah, but I think there's a drinking game uh, people play if they listen to the podcast for every time I mention my son and Harvard, so I can't. But <laughs> Wrong but, guest for that game. Let me say this. Uh, but um, but I do know that it is a highly stratified. In oh, way man. more than people yes. think. Way more than even the social network. The social network made it seem like there were cool kids and losers when in fact there are sliced after slice after no slice question. of cultural power and cultural um, impact. Yes. And uh, all these organizations we've all heard about, there are levels of, um, it's all categorized and it's and you're judged. So you go there and you're a high achiever. You yeah, got it to Harvard, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. But, but, but with, to your point, within prep schools, 
there is such a tremendous ecosystem in which the biggest fish, you know, the Andovers, Exeters, whatever, you know, they, they, there's a food chain. And so I went to a Catholic all-boys school in Manhattan, which sounds on the surface like, yeah, I should be ready to be punched, as they call it, by the uh, porcelain. Yeah. Which I was. I got an envelope under the door, had no idea what it was. Some, and, and, and so, you, and by the way, this is the perfect example of being insider outsider, right? I am being invited to come to a cocktail party to join this finals club. Which, which is the single final club. Final club. Finals club? I, am, I don't even know. No, which is the. Uh, the porcelain is the one that they're it's talking the about at the beginning of the parody, of, yes. That's the one they're talking about at the beginning of the social network. Yes, it's the one with the presidents <laughs> who were members. But and at the time, of course, you're in Zucker. Are you in Zuckerberg's class or a year? I am a year behind. A year behind him. Yes, and that's its own story that intersects with my strange journey through Harvard. Um, but the point is... Do you go? Oh, yeah, no, I, I go and I go to the AD and I, I'm now remembering the Fox and... There are these guys that I have either befriended or gotten to know through my classes, almost essentially, because I didn't, none of the kids from my high school, is my point, joined these clubs when they went to Harvard. And so to get an invitation is to A, step one, process, this, process what this is, right? It is the, it's Illuminati cosplay on one level. You get yes. an, envelope, an envelope under the door and there's a stamp in wax. And it's all of the, it's all of this billions sort of, oh, what is this? specific secret arcane custom that rich people do stuff. Have you called it Illuminati cosplay on a mic before? I have not. Because that's going to go in the crimson. Pablo, <laughs> I mean, you know that that's going in the crimson. That kind of should be the name of my podcast. Should I ever be not yes. lazy enough to launch So it? that's Illuminati cosplay. But, but I, I remember going to one of these cocktail parties and making a joke intuitively about the Feng Hua bus. The Feng Hua bus yeah. was this thing that went from New York to Boston. The Chinatown, like, it's the Chinatown, Chinatown bus. For about $10. I think it launched at $5. I make this joke, man, I'm so glad, blah, 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 bang, blah, bus. No one knows what I'm talking about. No one in the room knew no what you're talking about? No one in the room about? knew what the Fungwa bus was because they would never deign to take the $10 bus. They have trust funds and they are, they are many generations members of these clubs. And so that was an immediate, wow, my joke, which I had been making, by the way, that's like a joke that I had been making for a couple of times throughout college, fell completely flat and I had to interrogate why. And then you realize that there are levels within levels and that I obviously was not invited back to the second round. Did you join? You didn't join any of No, 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 no. I made it as far as I could, I think. I made it to like the second round, got invited back to the, this is so funny to go back over this now, uh, to the AD, which was like the jock club. Yeah. Uh, for reasons that are amazingly funny to me. Uh, and I had like a final exam the next day or a midterm I didn't go. I was like, I got to study for this. Right. And then you made your own choice. But uh but what did it what did it feel like to, I guess what I want to ask is before you set off to college when you were leaving your school yeah if I would have asked you like what does success look like in when you grow up when you go through here what would you, how would you have answered that question what were you interested in and what did you so I was the type of person in high school uh, who looked at the yearbook of the people that I admired the upperclassmen and I joined speech and debate freshman year and so that was sort of my lens to view everyone else at school. And so I saw the kids who went to the Harvards and Yales and Princetons and what they did, what they achieved, right? Order of the Owl was the academic thing if you got all At A's. your school. At my school. Yeah. And so I looked yearbook style and I literally wrote down, like, this is what all these kids who went on to do this did. I was that person as a freshman in high school for better and for worse. And so what that told me was if I want to get to there, I need to 
aspire to do something along those lines. And so I'd always found comfort within some structure, with some path that had been beaten down before. So me. you really weren't like checking in with your own God no. desires. God no. I was I was I mean, so to answer the question, what success looked like heading into college was uh, a good LSAT score and Harvard Law School. And that was sort of my goal entering, yeah. You were gonna be a lawyer. Absolutely. And uh, you didn't know what kind of lawyer, you didn't, you didn't have any in your head, I'm gonna clerk for the Supreme Court. I wanted to do that. You yeah, wanted to clerk I wanted for to be a Supreme Court. Court clerk. I wanted to, you know, be a serious, academically high achieving person. But, you know, I also knew that I wasn't smart enough to do like, or at the very least, uh, facile enough uh, in science to, you know, go and do, do uh, the doctor bio, thing. which my parents obviously, they came to terms with that uh, only recently, really, but certainly before law school leaving my life. Did it affect your sense of how smart you were that you couldn't, ma like, did? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I also, I, I, I my, by then, I should be totally transparent. By then, I wasn't doing, like, the advanced math my senior year of high school. I wasn't doing advanced calculus. I was already on the, I am a humanities person. Right, and, you jumped and, on that, but not because you wanted it, because it was a face-saving thing almost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was not going to get good grades if I did that stuff. I didn't, I didn't find it all that uh, interesting to be Where do you totally think candid. That, yeah, right. Which uh, didn't you find interesting? The science and math stuff. But the humanities stuff you did actually yes, find interesting. Yes, writing. I was always writing. I was, I was somebody who read and I wrote, and then after being a debilitatingly nervous public speaker in grade school, because I joined the debate team, because this kid from my grade school went and did it, and I just followed him into it, I realized, oh, shit, I can speak as well on top of that. And so you're on this, you're on this bullet train toward a certain kind of traditional success, totally. which is what you thought you, which is what, if I would have asked you, is what you would have said you wanted. Yeah, the safety of that. Did, did you recognize in yourself a kind of ambition that was greater than your peers, your friends? I think... Would your friends comment on it? I was surrounded by kids who were strivers. Uh, and, that's, and that molds, I think, some of the, some of the, some of the, um, the inner work that I must do on myself now. Yeah. Uh, which is to say that to realize that striving for striving's sake is sometimes... That's not a great concept. <laughs> right. <laughs> to, be, to be at peace with, with the things that you want and that once you get them, you must actually enjoy the getting of them and the having of them before you just find the next thing to copy down to a notepad about, oh, this is the yearbook achievement. I mean, if you can figure that out in your early 30s. You're 32? I'm 32. If you can figure that out in your early 30s, it's a huge win in life, actually. I'm, I'm knocking on this wooden desk the... uh, because it's, it's something I say more than I believe. Yeah, that's the <laughs> thing, right? Imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz. Now you can with Masterclass. Let me tell you, the David Mamet Masterclass for me uh, I was so excited to watch that one. I haven't watched the Aaron Sorkin yet, but I plan to because he's a super genius at writing television. Uh, I wouldn't be the writer I am without David Mamet, and both of those people are on there. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you'll find only on Masterclass. You can choose lessons from classes taught by over 35 masters, including Malcolm Gladwell, Ron Howard, on collaboration, astronaut Chris Hadfield on traveling to Mars, and so many more. Plus, new classes are always being added. Whether you are pursuing your passion or developing your career, 
you'll find a masterclass for you. Masterclass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. For a limited time, the Moment with Brian Koppelman listeners get a free seven-day trial at masterclass.com slash moment. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash moment. That's masterclass.com slash moment. How to figure out that it's okay to exhale. Right, because my whole idea of, of the bullet train uh, metaphor is it's a bullet train because not just I can and I want to go at that speed, but because you must go at that speed. Because this is a competition on some very unhealthy level, we are all competing. Which is you know, terrifying to say out loud. <laughs> right. Well, listen, it's a thing that prope- often young people who have a lot of success young you know, part of the thing is you might want to attribute it to your hard work so you don't have to look at what the innate characteristics are because what if the innate characteristics change or mm. no longer serve you? You want to lean on this idea that you can uh, focus and, 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 and work. Um, and then also what happens if you take a deep breath and look and this isn't actually what you want, which must have happened to you at some point in college. Well, what ha- so, yes. you know, tell me what tell, Walk me through what happened. So you go there, you're... Clearly, you know, you're, you're writing for the Crimson. You're yeah. having, you, you know, you said you, uh, before we started, you're the, uh, you were the precocious one. So you're at this place with, with high achievers. You're in the humanities where you know. Yeah, getting good grades, like checking the boxes. I am proceeding apace yes. on my plan towards yes. law school. And carefully choosing your classes. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm the type of person who, okay, I got a B plus. I need to take an extra class next semester. Oh, I can handle an extra class next semester. And, and. Sammy must know this as well. Yeah, I'm going to take five this semester instead of four. I'm going to do that now. I, I figured it out. I can handle it, blah, blah, blah. So I have my, I have my structure. Yeah, he graduated in seven semesters, which That's is a insane. rare thing there That's by insane. doing that. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, my moment of, of forced clarity is that I take the LSAT <laughs> for the first time after studying, and, and this is over the summer, I am putting myself through the labor of going to NYU Medical School Library, which is what you Is this ju- after your junior year? Is that yes, when you take the LSAT? that's right. So you have one more year to go at Harvard. Yes, and and I take the LSAT, and after all, like, straight up, I would go to church. My I was going to church more often back then, uh, and I would pray for a good LSAT score. I mean, with, with all of my heart, with all of my heart, and... I think that's what John the Baptist had in mind, by the way. <laughs> I think yeah, that was in that one of the was, When he started yeah, carrying yeah, yeah. the message, I think what he was thinking and hoping for. <laughs> one was, day this church will be used by some kid to get a good LSAT. goddamn LSAT score. Yeah. Right? And so all of this is self loathingly uh, remembered, of course. But not until I get the score back do I come to terms with the fact that I didn't do that great. And all of these prayers seem to have fallen on deaf ears. And not that I was angry at God in any real way, but I was. I was so shaken. What do I do now? Why do you think you didn't do well? I think I was too nervous. I was too anxious. It was, it was the thing of putting. It was. It was the fact that I had prayed for it. I mean, not that that doesn't work in whatever metaphysical I, and also sense. We have to, I mean, I just know from talking to you. When you, say, I'm not going to ask you for your LSAT score, 
But I will say this. When you say you didn't do that well. Oh, yeah. No, I, this is. You, this were, is, you were in the 90th percentile. I, I think it was probably around there. It was like not good enough for Harvard. Right. Or Yale. I'm saying you 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 did well enough because you had like a three nine at yeah, Harvard. Yeah, I, was, I had the good grades and all that. You did well enough, but you just for your own standards. So how did you yeah, process? Because this? I was not going to be one of the people that I had circled and said, I must be like this person and follow in their footsteps towards success. Uh out of a lack of imagination otherwise, but I process it by being shaken and really getting back into the library to take the LSAT again. And so what I did was I ended up, God, I ended up, <laughs> I ended up taking the LSAT again. And this was, I'm getting the timelines now clarified. I took the job in the meantime, post-graduation as a fact checker at Sports Illustrated. Lost rung on the ladder, timing. This is when you took system. the second. This yes. is when you took the second. So in LSAT. fact, my second LSAT was the day before September thirtieth, my first day at SI, which is October first. Right. And so I said to myself, I'll study all summer for this LSAT. I will take it and I will go into work and I will be out of that industry and that job by the time it's you know summer and it's time to get ready to go to law school, like I right. was destined to do. And what happens is I do better. Yeah. I do well enough on the second time, but I realize that I have actually begun <laughs> to enjoy this industry that I'd only intended to be a temporary life rep. Well, this is the essential thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is, uh, you know, John Feinstein tells the story that he got to a point early on where he realized, wait a second, I'm, I'm this smart. What am I doing mucking around in sports? And you know, he tried to be really thought about being a political reporter for mm -hmm. a while. I don't know Feinstein. This is just from reading his books. And then, and, but then he... You realize this is what I this is what I love, but the the, the question is you are so um, culturally aware. You're so clearly, and, and this is the thing about you know you say you and Bomani are using that word, and trying to parse. What you guys are really doing is trying to talk about America in this time through the through the prism of sport, right? Mm -hmm. And. You're trying to understand the way we talk about sports. That's why your show is 20-minute conversations. It's not snippets. Uh, but, but what is it about sports that grabs you in this way, and why are you turning your formidable intellect and, and, and work ethic on that? And do you think it can sustain you for the long run? Th that's, that's the big question that lurks uh, <laughs> behind a very dangerous uh, door in my brain. Uh, but I do think that I fell in love with sports because, A, through the literary tradition at Sports Illustrated, and as much as sports writing is the toy department, and I understand that it is not political writing, it is not business journalism, it can, though, be elements of those things. And if you do it seriously enough, you can do it and feel fulfilled that you have talked about subjects well beyond sports in so, in so doing. I've always seen sports as, like, America's town hall, where people end up talking about stuff that they otherwise would not necessarily want to encounter, whether that be race, politics, uh, labor relations, any go down religion, all of these things tend to meet in sports in a publication like SI, a place like ESPN, when they are at their best, engage with that breath. And so I was shown early on at these places that you could be intellectually challenged and intellectually rigorous by talking about sports, even if you weren't always talking about sports proper. So to be clear, I would not 
have the ability or the inclination to go and be a beat writer for the Yankees, even though that is a dream job that I respect and recognize. I cannot be Adrian Wojnarowski, Adam Schefter, the guys who are in the machinery of sports pro forma. I can't. That's not my bag. But the idea that you may have thoughtful, interesting conversations with people and and certainly use that as a way to get to other stuff, that's where sports sort of hooked me. And, and the idea of writing, and that's also behind that door, by the way, is the idea that I just sold out to be a gas bag. <laughs> to be a TV, to be on television instead of writing. Yeah, and this is something that Kornheiser and Lebetard and all, and, and, and all of the people who have mentored me uh, over time have, have told me I would do, which is it's so much easier to do TV than it is to write. And this is said by people who are fantastic writers, but who, like me, are clearly also in their heads a lot. There is yeah. something about the disposability of TV that's weirdly liberating. Because you don't have to stress over the lead. You, you have to do it quickly. You have to make your point and move on. I mean, these are the, thing, these are the reasons David Foster Wallace didn't like television at all, right? Mm -hmm. Or part of it was not just the disposableness, but the facile. Yes, required to engage or, or but on the other hand Americans don't read and so this is the other weird thing and this and now, I know you guys listening and women listening read uh, but generally Americans don't read but it, but one of the things that you realize and this is part of the the enlightenment of, of outsiderdom uh, as that I that I underwent as an adult like I have a platform People are listening to me. There is this feedback loop that is so beyond what I was familiar with. I did not aspire to have a, a bully pulpit in any sense. Um, as a writer, you kind of hope that you make an impact, but you don't aspire to have that impact upon people who may not be reading. Well, and I, that's just a weird experience. But I wonder, yes, because the audience watching you now is quite different from an audience that you could have that followed you on Twitter originally. Yeah, or, or read the long form journalism. Read you that in the I long form doing. pieces, yeah. which were commentary and stories, stories with commentary in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of like feature writing, like profiles of people, and and all the stuff that did scratch my intellectual itches. But when it came to, you can have a voice, and by the way, your voice is now going to be defined as if you showed up in someone's living room and they knew nothing else about you. Right, because those people didn't. They right. knew you from Lebetard's show. And, and, and in fact, if you were to track, and now I'm just really sort of visualizing this for the first time now, but if you were to track my life and realize that I'm moving within these circles of, of social circles that are full of people that I knew or mapped myself out in imitation of, now I'm in a place where I am now presented to someone who has no idea who the fuck I am. Right. And so they are seeing me as this random Chinese dude with a Mexican name, <laughs> as I began to be uh, called on Twitter a lot. Uh, and, and they're viewing me and taking me in for the first time as this guy who is telling them stuff. And that made me realize, oh, I am a representative of so many things that previously I didn't even have the, the bandwidth to truly fully embrace. How do you safeguard talking about the stuff that matters to you instead of trying to just ring the bell for those people? That, that's, that applies to so many things about the job of TV. And you are making art in a more art-centric uh, way. We are, trying to, we are trying to make people want to eavesdrop on our conversations. That's sort of our mandate. Uh, hang out with us. 
and and the idea that we need to bring people along at a certain speed and perhaps anticipate their caricatures of us while at the same time wanting to remain true to ourselves that's a dance we do every hour that we do the show yeah there was this great exchange uh that you guys had i texted bomani about this where i the show to me is the most successful like i haven't missed as i said i've watched every episode uh <laughs> but I forget an athlete you love had done something out in the world that you guys both had some issues with. And Bomani kept saying to you, get your mans. Yes. Go get your mans. And then you kept trying to say something. He said, get, get your mans. And watching it, I, I, I was like, these guys, if they continue to do this, are going to push this whole thing and bring people in to the way they really talk to each other, to a kind of a, a kind of cross-cultural literacy almost accidentally in the same way that Simmons got everybody, your generation mm -hmm. of people to talk um, about things like the Tyson zone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I read and him Ewing throughout my youth. <laughs> right, yeah, you, you're you in the generation of sports people oh, yeah, coming yeah, up yeah, yeah. for whom he's an influence of some sort. Totally, I, I mean, he was, he, he's always been, I mean, it's weird to say this because I came from SI, but he had always been the biggest, most popular dude who influenced the way pop culture could be infused into what we wrote and read. Um, but yes, the, the, the literacy that you're describing is so funny because not until we, I didn't have a real good sense of that until I started watching us back and people started pointing this out. Because I, like I, like, like you know, I, I am, this is, this is the water I live in, right? I'm not like, I, I'm right. not- to, to go back to David Foster Wallace. Yes, to yes. go back to David Foster Wallace's graduation speech. This is, this is the water I live in. And, and the, the next level I'm getting to in terms of, I am now this other kind of more prominent stranger who's burst into your living room. And there are yet more people who are processing me in this context for the first time. Uh, it turns out that the way that we talk to each other is novel. I mean, relative to many people's experiences. Relative to conversations on sports television. Yes, yes. And, and, and so the idea of us having a conversation that is subverting people's expectations in any way, that's what's cool because, and, and Bomani Jones is one of the most prolific internet power users that I know. And, and we've both been existentially uh, vexed by our usage and we're trying to get better and more zen about it, by the way, now. But the idea that he and I could both be online a lot, expressing our thoughts, and yet still people would not have as good a view of the nuances and, and intricacies of our beliefs and our worldviews until we were in conversation, that's what's so cool to me. Is that About the show. And how do you protect, though, you know, you, you, um, you, know, you threw it back at me and said, I get to make a show that's more dealing in art than you are, but... I, you know, how do you deal with the pressures of being on in the middle of the day following one of the dumbest shows on television? How dare you? How and, dare you? Um, and then having to keep an audience, though. How, you know, because, yes, a lot of people are going to watch you. At, like, um, your audience, people coming to, the te to, to your show because they're Bomani Jones fans or Pablo Torre fans, they're gonna tape the show because they're and watch it at, at yeah at after night. work after work or right? or on podcast and whatever in whatever cord cuttery form way right they do but then is there also how do you grapple with you know I read that big article right before the show came uh -huh. out the ringer Brian Curtis and the, the article about the fear 
of being too smart. Bomani's fear yes, of being too yes, smart yes, yes. on the show. I, know, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the number one job we have as people who work for a cable TV company is to hold the audience that first take is handed to us at noon. On a show on television. How dare you? Again, and I am wagging my finger very angrily in your direction in defense of my colleagues whose livelihoods provide my livelihood. Uh, but we have to take that audience and we have to keep it for as long as we can. Hug them, bring us, bring us all into some sort of, uh, yeah, really. And I'm really wrong, nice. by the way. Let me just say this. Skip Bayless's show is the dumbest show on television. That's right. Now I may once, have freedom to agree. Once he left ESPN, he, he took the majority of the stupidness with him. Be, because Max is very smart. Oh, by, by the way. Like, and, and Stephen A. Smith, who I disagree with constantly, is an inc has a very high intellect. Um, oh, my yeah, yeah, my yeah. better is a, a, in terms of like uh, raw intellectual power. It's his taste that I question. And 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 they are so good. At and honestly, that it's show. Uh, that really. And there's not to you. Uh, just to be clear, because I'm I'm sort of glibly saying this about that show. So Stephen A. is a great writer. When I've read him, I've always loved it. Uh, his comments about women made me lose respect for him as as. A, a public figure. So that's really my truck with that show is that I, I felt like his understanding of women's issues uh, really has nothing to do with the world now and is regressive in a way that I can't get behind. And so my short end for that is that it's a dumb show. I think Max is, is great at what he does. I've been watching Max since he was 12. And I think <laughs> that for real in New York City, and, and, I, and I think that um, Stephen A is, is a, an incredible talent. I just wish that, he, like Trump, Stephen A is not good at uh, owning his own mistakes in a, in, a, in a full enough way to move past them and learn from them. So that's what bothers me about that. And I think Bayless is a moron. So sorry if that, you know, I, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable spot. But. Hey, man, all I will say in response to that is thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, look, look, what I will say about, and, and by the way, this is part, part of the show that they do is 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 premised on the idea that those two guys can do television as a performance as a theatrical performance that is i think the best version of it that exists but it is a genre that we do not we do not aspire yeah, so to. the question is who are you talking to right and so we are and so this is the answer now i've i've now characteristically spent many minutes uh dilly dallying before getting to your answer but the answer is to have fun like we have to have fun we have to laugh we have to genuinely laugh, and we have to make bets that our senses of humor, as manifested in this conversational format that you described, will actually appeal to people in a way that will surprise and subvert those preconceived notions of what it is smart people sound like when they look like us. Are you struggling to get sleep? If so, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. Mattress Firm is here for you when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts here, people. And they're not just mattress experts. They can help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code podcast10. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial. So you can rest assured that you'll love your mattress or your money back and they offer a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. With more than 3,000 stores nationwide, not only are they in your backyard, 
but this means they have the ability to offer you deals that nobody else can. And that's on top of the 10% savings you'll already cash in on. So go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and start sleeping better tonight. People who've spent their lives being told how smart and capable they are, but who actually are smart, I have found have twinned with their confidence a great insecurity about living up to it. How do you manage it? It's, it's I mean, I think now of Bomani Jones, who has no problem with this question, right? He is owning it completely and thoroughly and with all of his being. And I have some complex that I will admit to in which there, I, I'm like, I, maybe this is Catholicism, maybe this is immigrant striving, but I don't like to talk about like how smart I am because I feel like it makes me sound like an asshole that people don't want to hang out with. Yeah. And that's me. I don't do a good job of But how of do you deal with the pressure that? of it? The, so yeah, fine. That's what I'm getting yeah. at in a way, which is... Which is like... Hey, 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 smart person, are you going to say something smart? I hope to live hey, up hey, to that Hey, smart person, are you going to do some good in the world or are you going to gasp bag about? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, the, real, that's the real problem. Yeah, so because I do, you... I do lay awake at night and think to myself, man, I have all these thoughts about what these senators should do. Wait a minute. Should I run for Senate? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I say that because it sounds obviously absurd to go from my bed to the Senate. No, it doesn't. But, but... I am finding that the bar for the bar to entry uh, for a lot of these jobs public is, service. is a lot lower and more terrifying than I realized. But more than that, what kind of an obligation do you feel like you're so raised in some privilege? Yeah. You know, you go to SI, you distinct. I mean, how did you, you know, you race up the, you get to write very quickly at SI, which, and by the way, you know, I've written for SI and it is an incredible, if you grew up. I guess you were one of the last generations. I was the to last read one in magazines, but like we fetishized print, right. As a concept, for me, when I got to write for SI, each time it meant a great deal to me just to be in that magazine. So, likewise, you got to to, to do that. But then, yeah, what is your obligation? To yeah, the world? like wh you know? why, why am I? I mean, this is this is me speaking to myself now. Why, if you enjoy doing all this non-sports stuff uh, and using sports to do that, why don't you just do the non-sports stuff? And if you're truly being agitated by these big picture issues that you think you can come up with clever tweets about, at the very least, what is there else to do in terms of action, given that you have this potential to actually influence people? Uh, and that's something that I, I think about probably every day. Uh, is, this, is this the best use of, of, of my, is this the best use of my talents? You know, and that's not a slight, by the way, towards the genre of cable TV or sports TV or sports. It's simply a matter of, man, I remember when I was growing up and my mom told me how smart I was. And it turned out after a while that she was probably right. She has always had like larger ambitions for me. And now my mom's voice is back. And my mom's alive, thank God. And she is here to also verbalize this sometimes uh, <laughs> in a non-imaginary way. But like the people who know me best, yeah, they expect me to go off and do something else. And I'm having so much fun doing what I am doing in a time when it's hard to feel totally great about having fun. <laughs> that it's, it's, it's a strange time, man. It really uh, uh, is. Uh, uh, on the other hand, man, by doing the thing you're doing, 
you are you and Bomani together. You know, I asked Bo. I said, uh, you know, you have the biggest vocabulary. Your vocabulary is as big as any writer I know. Mm-hmm. Yet, you could go on your show and say, "Gets that man his money," <laughs> you know. And I go, "Why? Why are you doing?" And he goes, "Because I want to have the freedom. I want to show that I can be any version of myself I want." And I can communicate. My job is to communicate. And I'm going to go get the people. And nobody can tell me which version of English to use. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use whichever version of English I want to use in the moment to make the point that I want to make. And there is a power in that and a service you guys are doing by being a black person and a Filipino person on ESPN in the middle of the day, being called the smartest people in sports but just the fact of that on its own is a public good, isn't it? Well, that that's what I, uh, at the end of the day, I would like to believe that. And and it's funny, someone pointed out to me that I, I am the first Asian American person on sports TV who is like a co-host of their own show. And, and so, you know, fact, fact check that, but... It seems that that might be the case. Right. They're a sports center hosts, though, right? Yes, yes. But in terms of like a talk show with your yeah. whole like. Oh, yeah, deal, yeah. For yeah, sure. Like, I believe that that's yeah, true. Yeah. Oh, no, it of course. And true. Michael Kim, and you can go down the list of people who have certainly paved the way to, towards me saying anything like this. But, but the, no, that is true. But the, though, but the idea yeah, that you're there. But, and, and I bring that up simply to say that I have to remind myself sometimes that I am an inversion of, of people's expectations merely by showing up. Yes. And that I am what has not been there when it comes to Asian American, let alone Filipino representation. Yeah, you're serving. And, and that, if there, and, and, and this is the fun part, and this is where the true outsiderdom has come home to roost, is people reaching out to me very earnestly, whether it's emails or whether it's DMs or texts or invitations from the American, Asian American Journalists Association to come speak at stuff. I am the representative for all these people who wish to have a foothold in sports. Well, yeah, and that's know, and that's something that I had never grappled with until you become a public-facing person. No, there's a great utility to it. Um, even more so, I think, if you keep writing somehow. I I know, and that's then that's that's in there. Um, you know, Simmons did write the two books before he basically stopped <laughs> writing books. And I think that was really important in a way that he put that, the basketball book out there. You yeah, know, that he yeah, did the yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I, I had the guys on here who wrote Armin Katane, who's a great yeah, yeah. journalist and writer, and, and, and his partner who wrote the Tiger Woods Jeff book. Benedict. And I don't know if you got to read the book. I haven't not. read the book yet. But I think that... Uh, you want, I want people who aren't white males like me writing about the athletes who aren't white males either. And so I had a problem and I articulated it to those guys. I loved their book is a great read. So I loved reading, the experience of reading their book was super fun. But when I put it away, I was a jumble of concern. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with the way they talked about race. Not that they got facts wrong, but that there, to my mind, there are better people to tell that story in a nuanced way that might understand it better than they could understand it, better than I can understand it. And so don't you think that's part of the function that you guys serve, where a lot of the athletes you guys talk, basketball is a predominantly black sport. Um, 
you guys are talking about sports that are largely played by outsiders. Yes, yes, and and it's and, and it's funny. High noon has become this this place where I have I have I think shouted out every Octorino <laughs> that's come across my path. I mean, and that's and that's obviously a a specific concern to the Filipino people. But merely having another set of eyes from a represented. Having another set of eyes from a group that hasn't been so represented at the table of race relations generally to to come and comment on sports. I mean, I saw this firsthand when I was the dude writing two consecutive cover stories on Jeremy Lin, who, by the way, seemed to be a divine signal that I was in the right business, right? The fact that that guy who's playing for the Knicks who went to Harvard, who I'd written about when he was a senior at Harvard, and I was at SI. And, and now I'm back and I have been in with his parents who I had formed a bond with and all of this, like that taught me, maybe this isn't gonna be every year or every generation, but there'll be a story when you will be needed. How much do you think race played in the way in which people wanted to write off Lynn, Lynn even after Lynn Sanity? I remember giving this quote to David Carr, the late, great David, David Carr, Carr yes. who, who, did, who did a story for the Times about Linsanity because, by the way, people like David Carr were writing stories about Linsanity because that's how big Linsanity was. Linsanity was a defining thing in my son and my yes, time yes, together. Yes. I'm, well, I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But what I told him was that the beating heart of the story is race. And it's because this dude showed up in your living room and he looked the way he did and you knew only a couple facts about him and that's how you made your... That's how you made your observations. Jeremy Lin, it's funny, I, I've now so many, and, and now we're bringing in the book idea because I had a very brief dalliance with the New York publishing world when it was very clear that a saleable Jeremy Lin book was needed ASAP. And so it was this thing of, can you turn this around in three months? And I said, yes. Right. And then began the process of doing a book that was soon after when he got hurt, immediately a bad idea for me to try and kill sure. myself to do. But anyhow, the point is, the Jeremy Lin story, I went back and, and you know, you talk to everybody in the league. You talk to Mike D'Antoni. The reason why Jeremy Lin, despite testing really, really high on the quickness and agility tests for the Knicks pre-draft was, was, was ignored. I mean, this was, this was him throughout his life. You talk to Jeremy Lin and he will tell you that in the playground, growing up in grade school, he was the Asian kid. He was underestimated. Scouts, I mean, some scout called him Ron on a recruiting trip, just like getting his name wrong, you know? And he just has these, it's the, it's the accumulated baggage of somebody who's been shat upon. And the idea that once he got to the NBA, and by the way, in college, he got racial epithets in the Ivy League. Was he a dominant player at Harvard? Yeah, he, he was one of the few players to lead the nation in all of the categories on his team. And he was, he was one of the best players Harvard has ever had. Uh, that's not saying a ton, but he was someone who caused me to go out and write about him when he was a senior at, at Harvard. Um, but the idea that he would show up in the NBA and suddenly the progressive enlightened NBA would treat him as if he was anybody else is a fallacy. And the way that people saw him and interpreted him was certainly through the lens of race because that is the most common lens people use to see anybody. And I'm not saying that there was 
outright abject racism against Jeremy Lin, although there are arguments that certainly that reared its head. I am merely saying that that is the lens through which we saw him. I mean, I just believe that if Melo comes back and Jeremy Lin is either white or black, yeah, Mello's a... <laughs> no, you were agreeing with yes, me. Yes, Mel, Mel, Mello is colorblind in his desire to be the man. And, yes. and certainly at that time, and I remember talking no, to but... Antony later, and he was like, yeah, having Mello out, it was like a college team. Yeah, but I, I think if there were a white or black guy who had achieved, Mello would have been more willing to maybe take that guy under his wing, you know, to do the alpha dog thing. So, so this is this is this is where the race stuff does get complicated because one of the reasons Jeremy Lin was such a phenomenon was because he's Asian. All the reasons I said that would lead you to underestimate someone like him, it was also the reason there was such novelty, right? This kid scoring 25 a game, wow. But there were other players in the league who were black, who were white more often black than white because that's the demographics of the game. There were other players in the league who said, wait a minute, I'm better than him. I don't get this sort of phenomenon attached to me. And part of it is because... But not to me, right? I had no sort of reason to focus on that guy because he was Asian. I was focusing on him because for those games, the Nets game, the Lakers game, yeah, he... Yeah, the, the Raptors, Valentine's he, Day... To, he did uh, what Magic had done in the beginning for the, in that he oh he was he, he was he united with... the team he united the garden and he yes. played a brand of basketball we hadn't seen and so if you were in those buildings what you felt was if someone could just if the if 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 the league were colorblind they would just allow this kid to let's see how long this can run you know uh, not dissimilar to the Tim Tebow, the way that Tim Tebow sure, was sure. Um, somehow not allowed because of everything that was unorthodox about him. and, and or, or very orthodox in another way. <laughs> yeah. Um, religiously. Well, but, but, uh, yes. um, but the Jeremy Lin thing, like there were so many threads uh, that were worthy of attention because it was also the Harvard thing. It was the fact that we were getting Mike D'Antoni's offense for the first time in New York yes. when the Knicks were super terrible and he did it against Kobe and the Lakers. And there was all of the, the pageantry that you'd want from a super dramatic white kid doing this uh, in a way that was totally shocking. But, but the fact that he was Asian, two people of Asian extraction, it was... It was the thing that we had all been waiting for. It yeah, was David our, Chang said that to me at the he, time. I remember. He's our Black Panther. That's what he was. He was. Oh, you think you think that uh, black people don't understand technology? Well, here is this man from Wakanda. You don't think Asian people can play basketball? Well, here is Jeremy Lin. Well, how? So you know, and as you said, here you are on television now every day, as the first Asian American to be doing this. Does it? Do you feel pressure? I are, do. I do. I mean, are you living in a state of feeling pressure by this opportunity that you've been given or that you earned for yourself, but that that you have? I think the way that my life has played out has presented me with a pressure that really uh, is is something that I intellectually acknowledge and contemplate, but luckily isn't felt when I sit down in the chair. Uh, it's something that I have... I'm unburdened by it in the sense of, man, I really need to not disappoint my people. I, I, I feel like I've, 
I've, I've gotten to where I am because I have proven to myself more than anybody else that this is something that is natural to me. Uh, but at the same time, believe me, if I, if I fuck up, if I say the phrase fuck up on live TV and I'm the dude who doesn't have a job after being the first Asian American to do this, absolutely that's humiliating. And I would recognize that it's humiliating for these larger demographic reasons. Um, but in the day-to-day, -day, I, I am glad to say that I show up to work and we just go. And the more that we can just go and not think about these big picture burdens uh, or, or expectations to return to the true uh, word du jour, yeah, the better we'll be. Well, I think you guys are doing great. Um as you are and uh pablo torre people can find you on twitter at under pablo the name torre. pablo torre are you and you, oh your instagram account so uh, i asked yes. omani i said what should i ask about and this is already a terrifying start to this question because you're now thumbing through your phone as we we're gonna end and i said to omani uh who loves you clearly Yes, and, 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 and the feeling is mutual. And I wish I had the, the confidence to own all of the things about myself in the way that Bomani Jones does, to be clear. But he said, uh, he, he, he hit me to your Instagram account. And <laughs> he said he thinks that it's really like a great thing that you do. That's where my art is, Brian. Right. That's where my art-centric art, and art so is. And so I look at it and there's a serenity you're trying to show us a different part of the world and not just the recent ones, which are these nature shots, yeah, but also yeah, yeah. it's clear that you're trying to give us the world as you see it without words. And so what's that about? Yeah, I, I, I have been fairly and unfairly lampooned as someone who has way too many syllables at his disposal. And when Brian, when, when Bomani uh, and I talked today about me Talking to Brian Koppelman, he was like, that'll be a lot of syllables, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, between yeah, you fair, and me. Yeah, fair, fair yeah. enough. Um, but I also wanted to show that I, 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 A, genuinely enjoy photography as a concept. B, yeah, I don't need words sometimes. And, and I, think, I think there is a unifying theory to my Instagram account, which is a sentence that if you were to pull out of this podcast and throw up, I'd be mortified to have ever said that there's a unifying theory to my Instagram account. But it is kind of like the world as I see it, but also the world as I want to remember it. Like one of the things that I do with my Instagram account and why it's a lot of like outward facing photos as opposed to selfies and stuff, although there have been selfies every now and again, it's because I occasionally scroll back. And this is, again, part of my toxic zen is that I am remembering where I've been, what I've seen through one of these platforms that is deeply neurologically addictive. Yeah, but that's are. kind of like my little Zen garden where it's like, here is the stuff that I was proud to have seen. It evokes an emotion or a memory. And also I'm proud to have aesthetically brought this into the uh, phones of however many maniacs are interested in such things. I mean, you have to know that I'm going to tweet when this episode is up that people should hear your unified theory <laughs> of Instagram. I mean, it's deep. you gave it's me real, that. I mean, you just deep. gave us all that. Um, so go to go to Pablo's Instagram. At P.S. Torre, by the way. At P.S. Torre. If you go to my Instagram, you're going to see uh, like a lot of selfies in a shot uh, and me shooting hoop to prove to people <laughs> that I have a, a good jump shot. That's, that's online. That's, I have that's, no, that's the next phase for me, by the I way, have is no to prove that I can shoot, uh, shoot but, a jump But you shot. will see that I have a good J.
<laughs> uh, so there you go. So yeah, we were just signing off, and then uh, I realized the thing I wanted to ask you about because what you do is so hard. You, you talked about the fact that it, it was it was clear I did a little bit of prep. Yes, you did. And I don't understand people who don't. And I did have down to ask you to walk me through your day, how you prepare for the show, and how do you keep yourself centered. So just talk through a day of doing the show, a day of prep, how you keep up with everything. Yeah, so I'll start with the end of a show because I do this thing where we do 220 of these. And so it's really just step into the cycle at any given moment and then go from there. So as soon as the show ends, one of our producers and researchers, Ryan Cortez, uh, sends us out a Google Doc. And on that Google Doc is the empty skeleton of a show. We have- Of the next day's show. Of tomorrow's show. Uh, and so that is, yeah, the blocks of the show. We start with names, we go to quotes, we go to numbers, uh, or sorry, we go to names, we go to quotes, we go to a C block, which is a single topic deeper. Uh, we gotta talk about X story block. And then we go to numbers and then we go to enclosing. So those shells are empty and they must be filled. <laughs> And so by the evening, a collaborative process will have occurred where we are all putting in notes in the document where I've said, I like this, or I hate this, or here's a thing that I would like you guys to look into. And you're guessing about uh, which games are gonna matter tonight or which sport, which sort of big sports story is gonna matter by tomorrow. Yep, yep, yep. We're, we're all judging that this is what our audience, our inherited audience that we are now crafting in our image <laughs> day by day, uh, would be interested in. And, and so by the end of the night before the next show, uh, we should all have put notes in the dock. And when we walk in the next day and we get, we get in, Bomani and I get in around nine uh, for a live show at noon, uh, we will then deliberate and and make sure that the final rundown what is What kind of such. research will you do that night though? Oh, reading. What are reading. you doing that night? What are you reading? Yeah, so I am somebody who has fallen into the trap of replacing my RSS feeds and, and my general, my general portal to news is Twitter. Me too. Which is terrifying. Uh, the more that I zoom out and think someone about that. Someone asked me that on Facebook today, you know, those things where you can say, ask me a question or on Instagram, like ask me a question. Yes. And someone said, what are you reading? I, I will say I used to subscribe to eight newspapers and 50, real you know, 40 magazines. Mm -hmm. And now I read the New York times every day and the New Yorker every week. And I get New York magazine when it comes out. But then Mo all the rest of the reading I do, or not, and the ringer I read every day, but every the the rest of the reading is triggered by the people I follow on Twitter. Yeah, and I they link me to articles. Yes, totally, and I subscribe to. I yeah. still read SI too. Yeah, I subscribe to SI, used to the magazine, the New Yorker, and New York Magazine, and blah blah blah. But those are these artifacts that I will read as print objects far longer after they were intended but, but to be But at night, read. what are you doing to read for the next day? Oh, show? I'm on my phone in a uh, sort of carpal tunnel syndrome-y sort of grip, and I'm reading articles. I'm reading sports journalism. I am looking into things that are interesting. I'm watching videos. And Are you subscribed to The Athletic? Yes, and I subscribe to The Washington Post, The Athletic, and The New York Times, and The Wall yeah, Street Journal. I read Journal. The Washington Post Washington every day Journal, also, by the fairness. way, costs a pretty penny. Monthly. Yeah. It is, so anyway. Yes, ESPN will pay for the, Washington, for the Wall Street Journal. For I you. do expense it. Yeah, they'll pay for it. <laughs> but, so I have this diet of, 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 of news that I am reading, uh, and I'm watching games, I'm watching whatever you know, is going on that night. Uh, but the next morning we get in. What time are you, how much sleep are you getting? So I have gone from somebody who was waking up in the first two weeks of the show at like 5 a.m. Yeah. Because I don't want to be the guy, and I've had nightmares already about this where I've slept through, it's like 12.30 and I'm like, oh! 
Wow. No, no one's going to let you sleep through the show. And that's what I tell myself is that I have a support network involving my wife and Eric Rydholm, our producer, and Bobani. No one's I, that's you not going to happen. The show. Yeah. But those nightmares have persisted. Uh, and so I was a person who would wake up at 5 a.m. and just be super, super prepared. And now I'm somebody who has realized, okay, I can get up at 7. I can go catch up on the news, get him back in the Google Doc first thing I do, uh, send texts with Bo and Brad Morgan, our coordinating producer, about topics, and then I will jump into the shower and then end up probably walking to work, at which point I'm still gonna be on my phone the whole time, but then we'll get into our desks, we'll finalize the rundown, we will have conversations about uh, various topics, as aforementioned, and, uh, and yeah, the big difference though is that as I remarked upon your pre-prepared, pre-printed sheet of notes and questions, which I am so grateful for, uh, is that I no longer do that. I used to be the guy in the Tony Kornheiser mold, and when I would fill in on PTI with Tony, I realized that he would do this. He had the longhand legal pad in which everything was written out you know, very, very precisely. I would never do that on a legal pad. I would do that on my phone or on my computer, but I would write down the sentences I aspired to say. I'm a writer, that's how I sort of scratched all of those itches and got comfortable riding the bike. What Bomani Jones told me as he would sit across from me in rehearsals, as I had these notes in front of me, as, again, a worst case scenario, when I would interview people as a magazine writer, I would have, much like you, questions I wanted to hit, a roadmap that I would refer to when necessary. What Bomani Jones reminded me of was simple. This ain't that hard. And and once you put it like that, I'm like, well, that's a challenge. Sure. And 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 he's of practiced for a and, long and, time, and, 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 and his... he is a special brain, as I have been on the record saying in various outlets now. But the idea is, Bobani had faith in me. I wanted to reward that faith, and that meant no longer bringing out notes to the desk. That meant no longer preparing in the way that I was preparing. That meant actually giving me less work to do, which was strange. But it keeps the goal of keeping you present. And that's it. Which is the Presence. most important thing on the television 100%. is you thinking through these questions. Everybody has the stats. Yeah, and it, it's being an active listener. Being it's right being there. Present. Yeah, and which is why I do the research so that I don't have to look at the piece of oh, paper. Of course, of course, of course. You know, and never write down sentences because I agree, you got to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would never have trusted myself to do it without some sort of binky, some sort of... Right. And... and, and what it came across as, again, in a way that surprised me, but people remarked upon, was, oh, these guys are just talking at a desk every day, you know? And so the idea that they could see that we didn't have notes was this other aesthetic That you thing. guys are just talking, we're actually just talk talking. And we were, and are. And uh, do you meditate or do anything to sort of like journal? Do you do anything to grab centered? So, so I am an I I would say that I am the wor one of the world's foremost meditation advocates who's never actually I think straight up succeeded in meditating. You know, like the intellectual concept of it I talk about so often and I think I have accidentally reached meditative states and I think I should be kinder to myself. I think I have sufficiently sort of uh, cleared my brain that it would qualify. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to transcend like Shibumi every time. <laughs> like, yeah, I haven't levitated. I haven't levitated. Yeah, you, get, you just, uh, what kind do you do at practice? Oh, there is, I mean, it is It is entirely untrained. It is not, it, I'm not doing like transcendental. I'm, I so would that's not. what I do twice a day. Yeah, and, and TM is a thing that I, I totally respect. And again, 
legitimately aspire to figure out which practice I should enroll myself into. But so what do you do to check in with yourself? How do you check in? How do you take a deep breath? What, have you oh, found oh, oh. a way to put that in your life? I have actually learned to focus on breathing. That's great. That's so meditation. That, no, so step one, I, I recognize towards like enlightenment of a certain form is to actually realize that your lungs and how you breathe and, and not just the biochemical relationship with oxygen going to your brain, but also just the idea of calming yourself and focusing on breathing as a way of clearing your brain. All that stuff I completely buy into because I've seen and, and felt you do it. it. Yes. And so I make time every day to be sure to take, you know, what is it? Five minutes of good breaths, you know, just, just quietly. Sort of that, quietly. And, and I do think that it helps. But the journaling, I have, a, I have a notes app. It is the notes app on my iPhone that is just full of all of the detritus that, detritus? Yeah. That collects. Lapel. Lapel. Oh, God. You call, yeah, that was, by the way, that's the other way to undercut my education and preconceived expectations is to mispronounce everybody mispronounces everybody mispronounces words don't worry about it i mean it's not i would feel it's better about more it's only that it's labels. only just that <laughs> bomani picked you up on it that was yes. the problem yes and that uh, much i am i am well practiced at taking and using for entertainment and personal fulfillment value all right everybody you can find me at brian koppelman on Twitter, the moment bk at gmail.com if you want to get on us about um, anything about our language. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>